0: This is BPM, the Berkeley podcast for music. My name's Nicholas Matthew. You can follow us on Twitter or visit our website at music.berkeley.edu forward slash BPM. Today I'm here with Maria Sonia from the music department at UC Berkeley. We'll be talking about her new book. Wild Music, Sound and Sovereignty in Ukraine, which just received the prestigious Lewis Lockwood Award from the American Musicological Society. We'll be talking about music, wildness, and the citizenship of border countries in the context of Ukraine's turbulent recent history. We'll discuss the politics of vocal timbre on display in the Ukrainian iteration of the global television franchise The Voice, and we'll talk about Ukraine's two politically freighted victories in the Eurovision Song Contest. Your period is bookended by two wins in the Eurovision Song Contest, both of which more or less coincide with revolutionary moments in Ukraine's body politics. So I suppose I wanted to start by asking, you know, what the importance of the Eurovision Song Contest is in Ukrainian public life more generally, but perhaps political life and how it ended up that way. And also perhaps to explain a bit to some people who may not know precisely, even with a Will Ferrell movie to help them, what the Eurovision Song Contest is... And perhaps who these two winners were, Ruslana and Yomala, either uh, side of this period in Ukrainian politics.
1: I will start by just saying that Ukrainian uh, politics is um, reliably uh, stranger than fiction. So the fact that there is this kind of coincidence of uh, Eurovision victories <laughs> with these revolutionary moments um, is is on the one hand terribly surprising, and on the other hand somehow not at all surprising i should be clear to say that the first eurovision victory we're talking about is 2004 so it's really at the same time as what was called the orange revolution was happening um and that was a revolution staged to contest um a corrupt election which uh re which instated the presidency of Viktor Yushchenko, and um and took it away from the attempted uh theft by Viktor Yanukovych, who nonetheless was elected to the presidency in a legitimate election some years later. So again, stranger than fiction. Um, the Jamala Eurovision win is in 2016, so it, it, it's a it's a bit more distanced from what has been called the Euromaidan or the Maidan revolution, although even those terms are contested in contemporary Ukrainian discourse. Um, but uh the annexation of Crimea that occurred in 2014 was one of the huge geopolitical um, punctuation marks of that revolution, and Jamala's ascendancy to become the Eurovision representative is intimately, I would say, tied in to those politics. So we can kind of dig into some of that a bit more.
0: Can I ask, um, just to follow up on Eurovision, You know, Eurovision has been discussed in music scholarship before, in fact, in some areas quite substantially. But usually as a sort of festival of Euro trash or kind of high camp, it lends itself to uh, kind of cultural studies paradigms where we like to talk about these, you know, slippery signifiers and the kind of exuberance of this almost over-determined representation of, different national cultures within a almost celebratory, self-commodifying way. Um, The way you're talking about Eurovision, although of course, you know, necessarily referring to that um, particular way of approaching it or thinking about it, nonetheless really takes it seriously as a sort of arena of geopolitics, or at least as it's embodied in cultural practice. Can you say a bit more about that, and particularly the relationship of Eurovision to um, Ukraine and, 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 you know, how it's regarded there?
1: Yeah, I think that's an astute point. And I would say that the opportunity to look at Eurovision and take it seriously um, really is another way of advancing the kind of cultural studies belief that even the quote unquote lowest forms of culture should be taken seriously. Um, you know, one of the examples I give at the very end of the book of the ways in which Eurovision shouldn't be sort of, you know, dismissed as just a frivolous performance of Eurotrash is the fact that it becomes weaponized in Russian disinformation targeting Ukrainians, that the fact that Eurovision wins with this highly controversial song in 2016, um, which was a song that, that thematized the Soviet deportation of Crimean Tatars from Crimea, which uh, the Russian state perceived in, as an attack on Russia. Um, the fact that that is the backdrop there um, meant that the next year's Eurovision would be hosted in Ukraine. And so for that entire year, Uh, Russian mass media, or at least facets of Russian mass media, would come up with these stories demonstrating the corruption, the um, incompetence, the... Um, all kinds of kind of bizarre stories about Eurovision and and its corruption in Ukraine or Ukraine's inevitable failure to host the the competition um, that became a real tool of disinformation. So we can sort of scoff if we want to at the the over the top pageantry, the kind of geopolitics meets kitsch formulation of Eurovision. But one of the things I really wanted to think about here is not to overdetermine the kind of nationalistic um, interpretation of Eurovision, that it is in fact a parade of nationalisms on display, but the ways that these also have really internal consequences for the states that, repre- that are represented by these pop stars. Um, so within Ukraine, one of the things I was fascinated by was the symbolic resonance of this Ruslana victory in 2004 and the ways that it really circulated in complex and sometimes unexpected ways among Ukrainians, among Ukrainians who are positioned in very different parts of the country, who are from different class statuses, racial backgrounds, etc. And so I do this kind of attempt to, you know, bring the question of representation back to the represented.
0: Toward the end of your book, um, in fact, you even have a bingo card that was um, produced by a Ukrainian fact-checking organization, which was teaching Ukrainian people how to read mass culture in order to identify evidence of Russian disinformation. And its I mean, of course, everything in your book just seems so tremendously prescient um, in the context of uh, American politics, let alone European right now. It seems to me it almost announces the way in which culture and politics have become coextensive in your analysis, not even separate, that politics is almost being enacted here through cultural practices.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the example of that you that you that you gave of stop fake is the organization that was a Ukrainian uh, journalist led attempt to to increase media literacy among Ukrainians because uh, the disinformation coming from especially the Russian media sphere was just overwhelming. and again, I, the connection to Eurovision there, Eurovision becomes enough of a trope in disinformation campaigns that it becomes a bingo square in their stop fake bingo. So, I mean, these are, again, these kinds of just amazing resonances and really, truly unfortunate resonances with the experience that, North, that citizens of the United States of America or anyone in the United States of America has been subject to, for the last four years, uh, not only because of Russian disinformation, but because of our own government's willful gaslighting of its citizenry. So this is all too familiar for Ukrainians, and I would say a lot of these techniques were piloted in places like Ukraine. Um, so I was able to witness some of that uh, taking hold there, but. You're also right that culture becomes a sphere in which these narratives, the dominant narratives of what Ukraine is, who belongs within the space of the state and what are the techniques for representing a coherent Ukrainian statehood are um, forcefully expressed in cultural realms. And I would say especially in realms like music, which is one of the arguments that I would say is, is is kind of humming in the background of the entire book. So thank you for pointing that out.
0: The trope or figure, or I'm I'm not quite sure what to call it, maybe topos, um, through which you analyse this overlap or intense contact or entanglement, maybe identity of cultural practice, particularly musical practice and politics, is wildness, the wildness of your book's title. I'm just going to read a passage um, from the book and ask you to expand on it. You say... As a sonic representational resource, wildness is expressed musically in many different ways, as outward-facing strategic autoexoticism, as nested and internal otherness, as ecological activism, totemic folklore, anarchic hedonism, or as a reflection of Ukrainian experience that refracts the gazes of external viewers. It functions as tie ty- at times as a weapon of the weak though it can be co-opted by the powerful. The wildness of wild music seeks to surprise, to call attention to itself, and at times to refuse. Wild music can present as campy, ironic distance, as utter sincerity, or as an ambiguous blur of these two extremes. In any of its guises, the wildness of wild music is disruptive in the present. I mean, that's... um, incredibly pregnant and with possibility analytically. And I suppose, you know, to, to almost sort of drag it down to more prosaic terms, you're clearly positioning wildness here as something different from, you know, things that particularly maybe in the history of ethnomusicology um, could be regarded as, to some degree, coextensive with it. And I suppose I'd start by asking you to distinguish between, let's say, wildness and primitivism. Wildness and savagery, or maybe noble savagery. Um, wildness and nature as untouched by civilization. Uh, why, for you, is wildness um, a better critical paradigm than those? And you know, what, is it, what possibilities of analysis does it allow you, particularly musically?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. And hearing that paragraph reflected back, I realized just how dense it is and probably how much um, how much I'm anticipating that the reader will read the entire book or I sort of unpack each of those clauses um, through the course of a chapter. So there's a few kind of important points I wanna make here. The first is that I was in graduate school at a time where post-colonial studies particularly was still a quite uh, prevalent paradigm, I would say. And so I was thinking a lot in terms of post-colonial critique beginning with um, canonical texts like Orientalism. And for me, I don't mean this to sound hubristic at all, but for me, wildness is a kind of discursive formation in the same way that Orientalism for Said is a discursive formation, but it is distinct in the fact that it is not as distanced as Orientalism. So for Saeed, key attributes of Orientalism have to do with a kind of um, fundamental otherness. And in the case of wildness, one of the things I'm trying to get at is that this is a tantalizingly close otherness to the historical uh, metropole, right? To the kind of center of knowledge production in Europe and North America. So that's an important distinction, right, that this is a sort of liminal space, a borderland region uh, that allows me to advance what I call in some places a border thinking, a border epistemology, and that's indebted to the scholars um, Walter Mignolo and Ladina Postanova. So the other thing about wildness is that it enters into the lexicon of popular music precisely because of the 2004 Eurovision victory by Ruslana Leziczko, this pop star who goes by Ruslana, and who won Eurovision with a song called Wild Dances, Diki Tansi. And so one of the things that became fascinating in the aftermath of that, um, and in the ramp up to it, because she had anticipated that with um, other wild projects, (laughs) as she called them, was that Ukrainians were sort of reckoning with what it meant to be depicted as wild on an international stage. And Ukrainians of different positionalities had very different responses to that. So for me, it became what um, kind of old fashioned ethnomusicology might call an emic term, an insider uh, part of the lexicon that Ukrainians themselves were using to kind of debate uh, how Ukraine relates to the rest of the world, let's say. I think that it is and operates often in ways that are exactly identical to tropes of exoticism, primitivism, savagery, or noble savagery, or even this kind of investment in an uncontaminated purity, authenticity, or nature. And it can do that while it can also do those things by making them ironic or making, or turning those kinds of tropes on their head. So Ukrainians use it as a resource, I would say, to both legitimize themselves center ukrainian modes of expression but also at times to caricature some of their own internal others so there's a kind of um complexity and nuance that i hope i brought to the book because i do feel like sometimes i'm handling a grenade that could go off at any moment by invoking something as loaded as wildness or um as a substitute for exoticism let's say
0: methodologically it's very interesting i think how it plays out particularly in the ruslana Example. So, uh, and perhaps you could expand on this a little bit more from the point of view of the song because yeah, I personally, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is your incredibly vivid and convincing uh, passing of these performances that you were at, or just, you know, just the way the songs sound. So, Ruslana, certainly by comparison with the Jamala um, Eurovision victory in 2016, is very much in the exuberant auto-exoticizing Eurovision mold and you know I learned from your book how much it borrows from what in Ukraine are recognizable musical tropes of a particular Hutzel western Ukrainian uh, traditional music I suppose uh, would be used used to have been called and what's very interesting then is that in your field work you uh, with particular families and communities and you ask them what they make of this Ruslana song and, and some people are happy with it, but a lot of people aren't happy with it and the way in which they feel they are being represented on a global stage or the way that it seems to reify a contrast between an urbane European-facing part of uh, Ukraine and some kind of liminal borderland savage space how is that negotiated in ruslana's song
1: yeah so ruslana's wild dances project um, and a lot of the albums that were related to that project both in ukrainian languages and in english or like half english half ukrainian releases um are are developing um hutsul materials according to her so it started actually as what she called a hutsulian project and then shifted into this wild dances kind of space Um, the hutsuls are should be understood um as the kind of quintessential folk in some ways of the Ukrainian imagination. But uh, the Hutsuls also occupy a somewhat ambivalent space here because they are both uh, inside and outside of Ukraine. Hutsuls themselves don't necessarily always identify as purely Ukrainian, for example. They live in a region that was tossed between empires for hundreds of years. And even the language that they use is inflected with Hungarian and Romanian and all kinds of other uh, Lone words. So the Hutuls are, um, on the one hand, depicted very often by in Ukrainian discourses as the kind of quintessential folk, this like very colorful, all of these terms are in quotes, colorful, um, you know, unique, independent, completely isolated, rural, all of these kinds of ideas about Hutulness, um, while on the other hand, being uh, also somewhat distanced from the kind of urbane cosmopolitan center of Ukraine. So Ruslana, who claims to have Hutzel heritage, but is very much a kind of city dweller, city creature from Lviv in Western Ukraine. She um, develops these Hutzel materials in this pop music that she calls ethnomusica, which is um, ethno being um, derived from a kind of term of identity in Ukraine that we can roughly approximate to ethnicity, although it actually has a very long and specific genealogy. Um, that Soviet scholars will refer to as ethnos theory. In any case, um, Ruslana develops these hutsul materials and popifies them and, and hybridizes them with um, current trends in basically dance music, Eurodance, pop music trends. Um, and out of that emerges this wild dances. So you know there are elements there are sonic elements there are instrumental flourishes that are that index hutzlness very specifically lyrical elements as well um, but on the other hand the manner of presentation and the kind of dominant frame in which it is presented which is a three-minute pop song are fundamentally non-hutzl elements and so i was really fascinated in the question of how do the hutzls themselves receive this song And what I discovered was that there was absolutely no consensus and the perspectives ranged from people who felt angry and tried actually to boycott sales of the disk in the Ivano-Frankivsk region of Ukraine, which is where uh, some parts of Hutushina are located ranging from that kind of an extreme position to the opposite where people just felt like finally they would be known on the world stage that this was really a prideful moment for ukraine and ukrainian history and for hutsuls in particular but the other point i just want to emphasize here is that the hutsuls have been caught in the kind of ethnographic crosshairs since before Ukraine existed as a, as a nation, right? So since, the, since they were subjects of the Austro-Hungarian empire, ethnographers have looked at the Hutzels as a kind of, again, quintessential folk. And so there's a very long history here of being exoticized. And that was part of what I was trying to get at here too, right? Is to sort of think about how I could bring my own ethnographic gaze, admittedly also as an outsider to this culture, but to sort of dig into a little bit what it feels like to have been the subjects of so much exoticizing through ethnography. Uh,
0: Another place that you hear wildness is in vocal timbre. And in fact, uh, I think my favorite chapter of your book is the chapter on the Ukrainian version of the hit television format, The Voice, and particularly on kinds of quote unquote traditional Ukrainian vocal styles that have a problematic status within the aesthetics of the voice. Can you say a bit more about that what what that problematic status is what this voice sounds like and How that could be another? Example of the wildness paradigm in music having a political valence
1: Yeah, so this is really complex stuff in my view but um, I'll start by just saying that one of the things that happened Uh, kind of a happy thing that happened for me is that I became acquainted with a professor at the Kiev Academy of Music, whose name is Yevhen Yefremov, and who is in many ways a very key figure, um, probably really at the center of what um, sometimes gets called the Authentica revival. Um, Not every practitioner would embrace that term. I use it in the book, but I just want to note that that is itself a contested term, which I also note in the book. But Authentica literally translates as Authentica, authenticity and the idea in that revival movement was to search for forms of ukrainian local expression that were uncontaminated by soviet folklorism folklorism would be the kind of fake lore right of soviet um, existence which again should be in quotes half of the words i'm using should be in quotes probably Um, so authentica was an attempt to learn to sing in the ways that villagers truly sing. And some of those ways had been institutionalized by the Soviets beginning really in the 1920s and 30s in institutionalized folk ensembles uh, where certain kinds of values were were implemented, including norms around the use of the voice. Um, So just to be kind of simplistic about it, we can think of that as basically polishing off the rough edges of a village vocal style Um, making people sing in tune with each other and sort of perfectly coordinated much more akin to what we would expect to find in like a western choral setting than what we would find if if you brought together three people sitting around a table who vaguely remembered the lyrics to a song which is much more common to encounter in a village setting so authentica began by, uh, through ethnomusicologists. This is one of the really fascinating elements of this, that these were scholars, researchers who would go um, on field expeditions into villages. Usually they would go for a week maximum. This is very different model of field work than what we do in North America, um, which we could also talk about. and they would collect rural repertoires. And the ones that were promising for the institutional folk, institutionalized folk choirs would become material for those choirs. And then a lot of the materials were not appropriate. And those kinds of materials were often religious or had some sort of religious text, which was obviously anathema in the Soviet Union, um, or had other kinds of themes that were just not permissible according to Soviet ideology. And so those kinds of texts were sort of languishing in the archives, you know. And some ethnic musicologists beginning in the 1970s started to want to revive these these kinds of repertoires. And this was not only in Ukraine. And in fact, Professor Yefremov was inspired by the work of um, Dmitry Pokrovsky, the Russian revivalist who had started a kind of similar movement in Russia, also on the basis of field recordings. And in 1979, Yefremov um, organized a group of graduate students to start basically experimenting in these village styles. And this was had a kind of ambivalent relationship to official culture in the Soviet Union. But by the 1990s, Avtentika became a kind of prominent symbol for some politicians, for example, of a kind of authentic and again, like pre-Soviet, pre-colonial, uncontaminated version of Ukrainian um, expressive culture. So vocally, one of the really interesting things is that there was an attempt to basically reintroduce the rough edges, which, is a paradox at its heart is paradoxical because this is on the one hand about a pedagogy about a mode of transmission that is very much instituted in the academy but on the other hand is about resisting a kind of genrefication or a kind of codification of style and so the approach to learning how to sing authentica is something that just intellectually fascinated me and i submitted myself to it as a student as well so this is a kind of quintessential participant observer thing. But I, got, I have had the opportunity to work and study with Yefremo for many years on and off. And um, not only him, but also some other practitioners of these styles. So what the story that I tell in the chapter is um, of singer, two singers who are both, uh, it should be noted, are also students of or former collaborators of Professor Yefremo. So it's a small, small circle of kiev based singers. Um, who decide to partake in this competition that is um, called Holos Kraine, which means the voice of the nation, but it's part of this global voice franchise, which we know in North America as the voice. Um, And this is a reality TV style singing competition where you have four judges whose chairs are turned away from the singer. And so all they have to evaluate at the beginning is the singer's voice. And it's really about the kind of voice in isolation. That's the drama of the competition. So when the coaches wheel around they express usually surprise at the physical appearance of the singers who they've heard the presence of these authentica singers on this television program enacted a kind of ritual crisis practically on the program where it challenged the norms of the competition itself it fundamentally destabilized the very conceit what do we mean when we say voice of the nation and is this authentica voice, this authentic pre-colonial, et cetera, et cetera, uh, kind style, does it deserve to be included in the voice of the nation? And that's sort of what I'm trying to unpack in that chapter. And a large part of the modes of disruption of the vo- voice's presence here has to do with timbre. So with the actual sound quality that distinguishes authentica singers from other kinds of even folkloric singing styles.
0: Is there a sense in which this authentica sort of mode of vocal production foregrounds uh, traces of a particular kind of body as a sign of a particular kind of ideal body politic in a way that the often concealed aesthetic paradigms of vocal production and pedagogy that undergird formats like the voice otherwise conceal in other words that the form of vocal production that we take to be good i say we i suppose the general consuming public of these shows um is always already trained in such a way as to allow us not to think about the body and thus to dramatize or theatricalize the, the the grand moment where body and voice are reunited. It seemed to me in your analysis, that split, that sort of what you could call an acousmatic split, kind of po- for political reasons, I and mean, it's not to do with anything inherent about the voice, but because of its political context, that split was not able to happen. And that tells you something about such equivalent splits between cultural practice and the body politic, not just the body.
1: Well, let me start by saying that the authentic voice calls attention to the body, profoundly so, through the breath and through a kind of effortful quality. So one of the ways people will describe the quality of the authentic voice is that it is the the body singing, but at the edge of yelling, that it's almost indistinguishable, right? And there are kind of important, sonic features including the hook which i write about considerably which is the kind of punctuating punctuated effortful ending of a sound that is directly counterposed to like quote unquote proper vocal technique in many many styles so there's a there's a fundamental way in which we hear the kind of bodily apparatus working in the production of the authentic voice that makes it really hard to to have the kind of split that you're describing here Um, But I think the other thing that fascinated me is, again, this paradoxical feature of tantica resisting genrefication while at the same time being institutionalized in the academy is um, the question of how to maintain a kind of heterogeneity of practice, right? And so one of the things that these singers... Kind of introduce as a problem for the reality TV singing program is that there isn't a singular voice of the nation and that that formulation itself is so deeply reductive and simplistic, which maybe to us sounds pretty obvious, right? But the fact that you have these idiosyncratic individual singers making these micro improvisations as part of the style. Um, creates a kind of rupture in the discourse and it's enacted as this repeated failure of the performers to, to achieve victory in the competition. But it also suggests the kind of failure of the Ukrainian viewing public or the televisual audience or the coaches or whatever to recognize that there is a kind of heterogeneity at play, that there's a failure of the Ukrainian nation to kind of embrace its, its fundamental diversity.
0: I would almost say that you're arguing more than that. I mean, that there's a sense in which the political metaphor of the voice, which has been, you know, thoroughly deconstructed by colleagues of ours in the, our very own building, very beautifully, um, that that can often serve the narrative of a kind of uh, liberal vision of heterogeneity where you know I, mean, I think i'm thinking of the north american context in which the multiplicity of voices um perhaps occasionally their strategic blending into one voice in a kind of e pluribus unum ideal is a premise not something that is a threat it seems to me that, that what you add to this analysis uh, comes from migration studies and studies of borders and is this other term that's hugely important in your book, which is sovereignty um, and sovereign imaginaries. The idea that not simply that the nation is essentializing and can't account for the heterogeneity of identities that have to be, in some sense, sort of harbored within it, but that there might be something that disputed territories and, you know, we could call them borderlands, but I took it by the end of your book to to mean not that Ukraine is somehow extra-bordery compared to anywhere else, but rather it's actually paradigmatic for a more realistic sense of how political identities are formed. That, in fact, borderlands are about more than heterogeneity. They're about... The fluidity of identity itself about the strategic adoption of certain identities for for p- particular political purposes, and about the utility of culture to even allow for strategic es- essentialism for the kind of auto exoticism that can really have quite positive results politically and that you can only really in some sense measure on the ground is that is, am I passing your argument correctly right?
1: Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you reflect it back in those terms. And I, I feel like you might be giving me more credit than I deserve. But thank you for that generous assessment. I So I'm trying to introduce this analytic of sovereign imaginaries. And part of, part of my mission in this book, and I'm really frank about this in the introduction, is to more or less avoid discussions of Ukrainian nationalism. And that's not because we shouldn't be having those discussions. We absolutely should. But the, I just didn't think that that was relevant to the people about whom I was writing in this book. It did not seem to me to be the necessary analytic frame, um, in part because it is so overdetermined in external discourses and the kind of potential threat, the lurking threat of Ukrainian nationalism is a trope that has been so overplayed by fear-mongering Russian media. But one of the things I really thought about a lot, and that was partly because I you know, was completing this manuscript after 2016 in the United States, was fundamentally what do we mean when we invoke the state right what is the state as a kind of category that can be felt not just bureaucracies not just the sort of political class but what do we how do we feel about statehood right and so i i I basically framed this as as a kind of patriotism question which is again a bit simplistic but i had to make a distinction there but what fascinated me was what is the attachment that Ukrainians who are the in, almost inevitable underdogs of global geopolitics, what is their attachment to this state that has effectively failed the vast majority of its citizenry. Why do they still feel and invest hope and project a kind of desire for the state to survive despite all of that and what I was seeing in a lot of these cultural representations was an investment in some kind of a statehood that at its heart I think points to the utter fallacy of the nation state or at least that the, the isomorphism of nation to state right so what we see is the kind of container for a, for a diverse collectivity of people some of whom continue to reinvest in the notion of this basically corrupted state but with the hope that it will improve and be better and they do that in an, a variety of ways but one of them is through these kind of creative Um, Modes of expression which range widely they range from the kinds of authentic practices that invest in a kind of archaic hope for redeeming, you know, the state um, or the Ukrainian project uh, towards a kind of postmodern pastiche based version of that project as well, which you see in some of the the prominent exports of Ukrainian popular culture, including groups like Dachabracha, who I write about in this book as well, or the Dach Daughters, a very closely related group to Dachabracha. Um, so one of the things I was inspired by reading here was a point made by the anthropologist Kathy Warner, who's written uh, very beautifully about Ukrainian nationalism, um, was that The failure of the global community to acknowledge that Ukrainian state sovereignty had been profoundly um, infringed upon through the Russian annexation is a testament to the fragility of state sovereignty everywhere. And I think that what we see right now in the US is a a kind of question about what are the investments that we have in sovereignty? What do we mean um, when we invoke slogans like America first, which most of us accept as a dog whistle? And it kind of, I see a a resonance between those kinds of questions there and here. So I was trying to sort of sidestep questions of nationalism. Um, Again, not because they're not relevant uh, to the Ukrainian case, as they are everywhere around the world, but just because I didn't see that as the major uh, through line here. I don't see, what I don't see for the most part are people here believing that Ukrainians are exceptional and superior what i see is that they remain invested in a kind of project of statehood um, through a creative practice of sovereign imaginaries and those sovereign imaginaries are not only political sovereignty or juridical political sovereignty but also cultural sovereignty and also fundamentally about the sovereignty of the subject itself the the individual um, him or herself the selfhood of the ukrainian subject
0: something occurred to me again reading your book that has occurred to me before particularly because you know I've written mostly about 19th century and 18th century music still in music studies we lack a compelling theory of social attachment through creative practice that isn't somehow mediated through some implicitly national discourse that nationalism is partly our go-to paradigm because it's still the only it's still the sort of let's say the master trope of what squishy personal attachment to bodies larger than us look like and of course music is fundamentally folded into that story because it was there at the start of theories of nationalism in its earliest sort of 18th century herderian articulations and so i you know i just find it fascinating that you can say there are these affective attachments made through embodied practices that really do position people and their bodies and communities um in different ways in relation to a state that are that may be national but are not necessarily and to the extent that they are national they can be strategically so they can be multinational they can they can you can ply between different nationalisms and actually that this might be more typical of the way in which people relate to states particularly through cultural practices um than we think and I, i sort of find that um very inspiring, actually, is a kind of a different paradigm.
1: You know, I start the book with an epigraph from Herder himself, who has a kind of prognosis for how Ukrainian, the Ukrainian nation will realize its full potential. But um, so the kind of folk music element is is at play there. But again, what I was seeing on the ground was not about maintaining a coherent sense of nation, but rather about figuring out how to have a, a shared space of governance that to me seemed much more akin to what we think about when we talk about projects of statehood
0: the berkeley podcast for music i wanted to ask about another word that's in the title you know we've done wild we've done sovereignty uh, we've certainly done ukraine um sound you don't say music and sovereignty in ukraine you say sound and sovereignty and perhaps we can talk about uh, about this in relation to the fascinating chapter on Crimean radio. Um, you know, we're in a moment when everyone in music studies is articulating a particular relationship, I think, to the sub of sound studies, and there is certainly a good deal of sound in your book, as there would be, because music generally comes with it. Um, I'm wondering how the paradigms of sound studies, and let's say particularly in relation to this liminal borderlands paradigm that informs your study of Crimean radio and the kind of communities it can form, how do the paradigms of sound studies help you there? And I suppose the, 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 the other question would be, or maybe the inverse of this question would be, how is your book here nuancing what sound studies is? for someone in music studies?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. And I will be honest to say that my thinking um, is is somewhat unsettled on some of these questions, But, but I think there's a few things I will point to immediately. And the first is that I don't think music studies has done well articulating our relationship to sound studies. And so one of the risky things that happens is in some corners of sound studies, and I'm not trying to indict this vast interdisciplinary uh, uh, formation, but in some corners of sound studies, you see people using sound as just the new substitute term for music. And so what it does is it affects, effectively replaces one vexed ontology for another. And I think we need to push back against that. You will hear amongst musicologists, some ethnomusicologists, the pr- per, uh, perspective that we have always been doing sound studies. And I don't agree with that. Um, I think sound studies has contributed enormously in extending our understanding of the role of phonography and sound reproduction technologies, also in our understandings of deafness, and our understandings of silence, and in certain vernacular understandings of music. But what we haven't done well is made the linkage that ethnomusicologists have always begun from the starting position, that music itself is a problematic term or a term that needs to be understood as not universal, that this is on its face a kind of Western ontology, of an object of study that appears stable to us, but it is not analogous to how people around the world think about music or musical sounds. Um, So one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is articulate the relationship between what I see Ukrainians calling musical sounds and non-musical sounds to music. There is no question that most of the musical materials I'm writing about here would be considered as such by Ukrainians. They are, in fact, music, legible as music. But there is a question about certain kinds of sounds that become incorporated into the structure of a three minute pop song, for example, that not everyone would agree instantly is a musical sound. Or if they did agree that it was musical, they might not agree that it is competently performed music, right, that it is somehow worse or bad or should be devalued in certain ways. The blare of the Hutsul Trimbita, for example, is not the kind of sound that easily renders itself fully musical. And in fact, in its original context, it was as much about communication and signaling um, events in the community as it was about some sort of aesthetic performance. So I'm partly I'm trying to get at the ways in which we in music studies take music to be this privileged site um, that is a coherent bounded object of study um, that I think sound studies has helpfully forced us to address. Um, I wish we had we had better ways of, of addressing this because what I see as the kind of potential threat from sound studies, not that it should be understood as a threat necessarily, but is that that Again, certain people writing about music in sound studies are actually just repeating some of tr- some of the tropes that music studies has actually advanced beyond the kind of autonomous art object version of music. So that's partly what I was trying to get at here. So in the chapter you asked about, um, which is about the rise and fall basically of this Crimean Tatar radio station in Crimea, um, Radio Medan. Um, I am drawing on paradigms from anthropology and sound studies from scholars who have been at the forefront of thinking about um, infrastructures like radio and the ways that they um, discipline citizens into norms of comportment and the ways that they create kind of um, analogous effects to what Benedict Anderson famously called pre capitalism, right? Sonorous capitalism as a kind of um, analogy to that. So for me, I'm building off of these literatures and deeply indebted to thinking about them. The story that I tell in that chapter, which is about the kind of perceived intrusion in some cases of what the Crimean Tatar radio was calling quote, Eastern music, is really about um, how people were evaluating things that they considered to be less valuable sounds, right? Sounds that interfered with their experience of the city. And in those cases, what we see is the, treat, the ways in which sound becomes a way of, of kind of dehumanizing or rejecting or refusing to engage in what to other people was considered music. So that could be considered one of the kind of subplots, I guess, of that chapter. Um, but the question among Crimean Tatars, right, of what is legitimately Crimean Tatar music, and then among themselves, how to sort of debate Uh, whether, for example, Crimean Tatar hip-hop should legitimately be included as Crimean Tatar music is another, just a very conventional in in some ways story about how a community decides amongst themselves what they consider to be valuable musical sound and what they devalue as musical sound.
0: To end, I just wanted to ask about your relation to, you know, two other disciplinary impulses, maybe even disciplinary areas of hand-wringing. One is the ethno-prefix. The Society for Ethnomusicology and others, you know, for some time have expressed concern about the ethno-prefix and what that signals about the relationship of knowledge producers to the people and places that they are studying and from whom knowledge is extracted. And the colonial... And postcolonial histories of that form of knowledge production, given that your subject almost seems to thematize and contest this very nexus of concepts itself, I'm wondering how you're currently feeling about the status of this book as a work of ethnomusicology, and what might make it ethnomusicology as well as sound studies and music studies?
1: Yeah, it's a really tricky set of questions and I'll try to be brief here. But I think the first thing I'll say is that ethnomusicology has and always will be an interdiscipline. Um, I was actually trained by people who got their degrees in anthropology primarily. So in many ways, I feel strong kinship with anthropology, which is also of course subject to exactly the same critiques about colonial knowledge production and extraction and has been having that reckoning for decades, I would say, although maybe we're at a new peak right now, which is all to the good. Um, In terms of music studies, ethnomusicology emerges as the marked other to the unmarked, unprefixed musicology. And what we've seen in over decades is a shift within musicology towards a less European focused, a less elite focused um, music studies, which has at times included popular music now and also American music. The question of American music and popular music in general has for a long time evaded both of these disciplines, which is just appalling to think about truly. And to me, the question of whether ethnomusicologists should be studying American music, for example, um, is almost comical at this point. I think we settled that question with Charlie Kyle's urban blues, frankly, Um, that was decades and decades ago. So I think, in terms of the disciplinary inheritances that we are dealing with today, I feel that we're at a very exciting moment where we can be critically re-examining which aspects of these disciplinary inheritances we want to keep, which ones we kind of, kind of want to put into the museum, perhaps, and uh, you know, so maybe topple the monuments, but then put them into a kind of a, a contextualized space, and which things are kind of just inherently going to be one of the problems that we have to live with. So I would quibble a little bit with with the idea that ethnomusicology is inherently extractive to a greater degree than history, for example. I think that the question of ethics is definitely elevated when you're dealing with living subjects. I don't dispute that. But I think we could see both of those as extractive processes in which the North American Academy Uh, which has, which wields so much global sway and power is fundamentally extracting knowledges from other parts of the world and, and then presenting them to publics to further their own careers. I mean, I don't know the structural solutions to that right now, but I do think that one thing we can be thinking about are forming allegiances with local scholars um, and finding new modes of, collaboration which is something i am deeply interested in even though in my own case the way that ethnomusicology has been articulated in ukraine is in many ways incompatible to the ways that i've been trained to do it um, but dis- but a both of those disciplines are shifting and b i've still found some ways to find common ground enough that we can work together and value the expertise of people whose paradigms just are radically different than the one that I have been trained into. Um, So I'm not sure that's a very satisfying answer, but I think one of the things that we need to be critically thinking about is how popular music still often means North American popular music. Popular music studies often takes kind of um, the assumption that we're talking about popular musics in North America or sometimes in Western Europe, uh, but not often the rest of the world. And so it does not make sense to me that when we are talking about popular musics from Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union, wherever else in the world, South America, that those automatically should be considered ethnomusicology. So I think that these um, old assumptions about disciplinarity are um, m- m- many in many ways irrelevant, but I certainly don't see a clear path out myself, nor do I have the structural power to implement the changes that I might want to see tomorrow, but I am really deeply invested in having these conversations and I'm really heartened to see that they're happening in all kinds of spaces right now um, and hopeful that, that we might come to some new understandings of the kind of bigger project that we're engaged in, which at its root, I still find to be about doing good research Um, amplifying stories that might not not otherwise be heard and perhaps in the most hubristic formulation, um, increasing knowledge to the world. So um, the question of how we do that and what becomes the object of study is a little bit fuzzy, but I am trying in my book at least to not take for granted at the very least some of the norms that were certainly under examined in my own training.
0: Thanks to Maria Soniewiczki and congratulations on the Lockwood Prize. The book we've been talking about has its own website at wildmusicbook.com where you'll find reading and listening to supplement the book's discussions. As ever, you can follow us on Twitter or visit our website where you'll find links to reading and listening based on this episode. You'll also find details about Music Department events, how to donate to the Music Department. Much, much more. My name's Nicholas Matthew, and that was BPN.
1: Largely due to, well, I take, I take all of that back.